As you are aware, last week we were not able to complete uh, this portion of our study. Um, We were intending, I was intending to do that on last week, but then did not make it through that, uh, through the entirety of this last portion of this hymn to Christ. So we'll begin our reading again this morning in verse 5 and read through verse 11. Paul writes, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven, and things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's bow again in prayer together. Father, we want to acknowledge the exalted Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, as we approach your word today. I pray that your spirit would provide us understanding and discernment, and Lord, that we, as we gather, would see the truth of the revealed Christ in such a manner, Lord, that you would use not only the example of our Savior as we see before us in this text, but as well, Father, we can see his lordship such a manner, Father, that we have our own lives being transformed continually by the grace and working of the Spirit of God dwelling within us. Lord, as it's been already asked this morning, so we again ask you to help us to be aware of your purpose in conforming us to the image of your Son, that we might be pliable in your hand as the clay in the potters. And Father, that as we would study this portion of your word, Again, that the understanding we might have would be more than that of just a knowledge, but Father, that it would be transforming to our very lives as we consider Christ who humbled himself, yet you have exalted him above all. So we thank you for our Redeemer, our Savior, and for this wonderful work of grace that you have performed and the mercy that is ours in your Son. May we exalt you as you have been exalted and exalted our our Lord Jesus. May we exalt him. May we exalt you as our heavenly father. May we bow humbly before you, Lord, in heart and spirit, in submission to you, to your truth, to your son. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you and be seated. Last week we began our study of the last portion of this text. I want to again do a little review in bringing us up to where we left off on last week. And within our study of verses 5 through 11 of this chapter, again referred to as the Carmen Christi or the hymn to Christ, uh, I have pointed out to you the three elements to this hymn to Christ. Paul began this praise to Christ with this exhortation for us to have the same mind or possess the same attitude as did our Lord. And I told you last week that God has given us his spirit. He has renewed our mind, giving us the mind of Christ. And we are commanded, therefore, in verse 5, to let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, again, this is not just a passive statement being made. It's not just saying, oh, well, you should let this happen. No, Paul is giving a direct charge that we are to an exhortation to 
live out the truth of Christ within us. And we see this even realized more so if we conclude the hymn to Christ, which begins in verse 5 specifically. We know in verses 12 through 13 of this same chapter, chapter 2 of Philippians, Paul goes on to say, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you." both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now I want to again remind you how these two verses following the hymn to Christ help us to understand the importance of the hymn to Christ. Of course, in this hymn to Christ, Paul is saying that Jesus humbled himself, equal with God, yet humbled himself. He is God in the flesh, the very Son of God manifested in the flesh. He who has always been with God, John chapter 1 and and 1 through 3, 4, and then verse 14, 1 John uh, chapter 1, the first uh, beginning verses of that. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1 and following through there. And Colossians chapter 1, over and over again we see the eternal Christ, the eternal uh, Son of God. But he was manifested in the flesh in the fullness of time as Paul teaches in Galatians. And so again, the manifestation of the Son of God in the flesh is not the creation of the Son of God. He is God eternal. He is the Son of God eternal, though he was not dwelling in human flesh. And that is everything to to do with the exaltation which we read this morning because it's not that God exalted the person of his son that was less than he God the father was it's that God exalted the glorified flesh of the very son of God who lived died and rose again victoriously and now is at the right hand of the very throne of the majesty on high, God the Father. And so in exalting our Lord Jesus Christ, the exaltation is not, and Paul makes this clear in in Philippians 2, and we've dealt with most of this passage already. We're just again going through this latter part of the exaltation, verses uh, 8, 9, 10, 11, if you will. And so in this passage, we see that God, Paul declares that Christ is exalted by God the Father. But we must recognize in the previous verses, he says, if you recall with me, look with me, in verse 6, he says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Let's pause there for a moment, just a, a quick review of the first four verses. As you find, Paul says that we are to be like-minded, that we are to have the same mind, and we are to have the same spirit, the same purpose. And again, something about the like-mindedness mentioned in Scripture that is very, uh, very interesting to me is when you do a study of this term of being like-minded, we again often reference that in our, our would immediately relate that to being agreement, but that's not at all what Paul is talking about here, actually. He's not saying be in agreement about things. He is saying being like-minded, and then he goes on to say, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he goes to demonstrate the humility of Christ, to emphasize his humility and his sacrificial, selfless love and commitment to the purpose of God the Father. And again, when you look consistently throughout the Scriptures and you study out this term like-minded, this word like-minded, you will find that the emphasis is in relation not to us being in agreement about doctrine or things, so that is of the utmost importance. It is talking about that we view ourselves in humility, preferring others above ourselves. And that is consistently taught through the New Testament concerning this matter of like-mindedness. And here is the danger. We all are selfish. We all have pride within us. We all have selfishness within us. And Barring the fact that we submit, unless we submit unto the Spirit of God, the truth of the Word of God, we will always prefer ourselves 
above others. But he's saying, let this mind be in you concerning the humility of Christ. But then notice verse 6, moving on. Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now, Paul is not saying, okay, Jesus thought it not robbery to be equal with God, so now you don't think it robbery to be equal. No, that's not at all what he's saying. He's saying, let this mind, this same attitude of humility be in you, even though this is the supreme example, the superior example of humility, of all humility. No humility could ever match that of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason why is because he was equal with God and yet humbled himself, making himself lower than the angels, taking on the form of the likeness of sinful flesh without sin. And so, again, I want to remind you as well, as we pointed out many times in Philippians 1, 9, and 10, you see the thesis statement for this entire epistle, which is everything, again, It has to do with what Paul is dealing with in this hymn to Christ and his exhortation to us concerning this hymn to Christ. And that is that Paul is teaching or showing us uh, and to the Philippian believers, he is saying that they are to mind those things, prove those things which are excellent. And again, the word excellent is that of superior. And so everything Paul is dealing with throughout this letter, we see consistently he's talking about this is superior. Might might, Might I say to you that It is superior for us to humble ourselves and prefer others. That is superior. It is superior that, Paul, again, that I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. He says, all things are inferior to the superiority of knowing Jesus and continuing to know him. And so now he's saying, let this mind be in you. This is an excellent mind. This is the superior attitude that we are to humble ourselves, preferring others before ourselves. And if Christ who in John 13, again, he said that if I am your master and you call me master and you do well by calling me master and yet I have washed your feet, I have served you in the most humblest of forms, then you should do the same one to another. Again, not making an ordinance of foot washing, but saying I am humbling myself to the lowest basis form of service and if I am your master in doing that, then should you not do the same? Now remember, I do want to give you this warning as we continue this study to remind you of this truth. As we see in verse, verses 12 and 13, Paul is saying that he's, he's exalting Christ, but then saying, now this exaltation of Christ, Christ humbling himself, being God, equal with God the Father, yet humbling himself in the flesh, giving himself to the death of the cross. And as we saw in Galatians and Deuteronomy, from which Galatians quotes, that the curse of God are those who hung on a tree. So he took upon him the very curse of the wrath of the Father. And so he just die, and he didn't just die unjustly, he died unjustly, willingly dying the most shameful of deaths and taking on him the curse and the wrath of the Father for our sin. And if Jesus, being equal with God, did this, are we not to humble ourselves in preferring others above ourselves? And that's what Paul is, is driving home. This is superior. This is a more excellent way, obviously, than what we would normally, of course, how we would live or what we would accept or believe to be best, at least in our own interest, obviously. And so this, this, these verses, verses 12 and 13, help us understand the, the hymn of praise to Christ is not only provided to magnify the person and work of Jesus, though it does and it should, but also to call us to follow his example of humility and selfless submission to the person and purpose of God the Father. Now let me remind you of this truth I wanted to warn you here. Jesus is much more, don't ever view the Lord Jesus Christ as only an example. He is so much more than just an example. But he is the supreme example in all things uh, pertaining to, to spiritual holiness and righteousness and that which is right and life and godliness. He is an excellent example. He is the superior example. But he is so much more than that. So though Paul gives us this example, notice how Paul does it. He doesn't just say, okay, be like Jesus, and this is how Jesus died on the cross. No, he says... The Son of God, being equal with God, 
humbled himself even unto death, and God hath highly exalted him. He's saying, this is our example. And we are to understand his, his majesty and glorify him and therefore live accordingly as we have received Christ, so walk ye in him. So Paul begins this hymn with an exhortation to submit to the mindset of Jesus. And then in verses 6 through 8, I told you last week that he explains the mindset of our Lord by emphasizing the humility of Jesus. Again, in, in the King James translation, we see, of course, that verse 5 ends with a colon. And that, of course, is, a colon connects two independent clauses. And two independent clauses uh, uh, are joined by a colon when the latter clause, the second clause, explains the first clause. So when he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, he then explains this mind or this attitude, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in a fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So we begin by looking at the excellency of the person of Jesus in verses 6 and 7 of this text. And we won't hash all that over again, but he does say in verse 6, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. So we see the superiority of the person of Christ himself. Then we looked at the excellency of the submission of our Lord Jesus in verse 8 when he says, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So again, this humility was a humility that surpasses all other humility. Second Corinthians 5.21 stated, for he, the Father, hath made him the Son to be sin for us, the sinner, who the Son knew no sin, that we, the sinner, might be made the righteousness of God in the Son, in him. And so he literally took our place. He took upon him the form of a servant, the form of, of mankind, the form of sinful flesh without sin, and died on our behalf. 324 through 26 speaks to this too. Then this morning, so we will continue our study of this text by considering the third element. This is the, so we see the, the excellency, the superiority of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we see the superiority of the submission and humility of the Lord Jesus Christ in this hymn to Christ. And the third portion of this hymn is the exaltation of Christ, the superiority of his exaltation, the excellency or excellent exaltation of Jesus. Verses 9 through 11, let's read them. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the exaltation of Jesus Christ is the direct result of his humility and submission to the Father. And we're talking about in the flesh. Remember that. And we're going to look at these verses I mentioned, some of them I referenced a moment ago. We're going to read in just a moment because I believe it's important for us to remember this. We say, well, we believe, of course, in what is theologically referred to as Trinitarian monotheism. So we believe that, of course, there is the eternal Godhead dwelling the eternal deity that is three distinct persons that are equally God together, yet three distinct persons, not manifestations, three persons of the Godhead. But then you read verses like this, and this hymn to Christ, and you begin to say, well, wait a minute, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, yet humbled himself, now God has exalted him. So here you would say, oh, well, there are, are there stages here in the Godhead where the Son now is less than the Father? Where's the Spirit fall in this? How does he become part of this? No, that's not what's being spoken of here. The eternal Godhead has always been and will always be, but the Son of God came in the flesh, and this is what's being spoken of. Paul as well deals with this um, in other epistles. You remember, in, in I believe it's in Corinthians, if I'm not mistaken, where Paul says, or maybe Ephesians, one of the two, but he states that the head of every... Um, 
the head of the woman is the man, the head of man is Christ, the head of Christ is God. Well, the head of Christ is God. Again, are we seeing some tier of, of hierarchy in the Godhead? Not at all. Who is Christ? The anointed one, the Messiah. So he's not saying the word, the son of God, in his eternality is less than God the Father. He is saying, no, in his earthly existence, in his earthly life, what did the son do? Whatever the father, whatever pleased the father. He was totally submitted to the will of the father. That was his whole purpose. He is the supreme example of, by the way, submission to the father is genuine biblical worship as defined, even in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And we understand uh, that, that uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, I'm sorry. But you understand then that, that Christ humbled himself as a man under the father in his flesh, And therefore, the head of Christ is God, meaning the head of the very flesh of the Son of God is the Father himself to whom the Son completely humbled himself and submitted himself in all things in worship unto the Father. And so the exaltation of Jesus Christ is not the eternal person of Jesus now being exalted in some equal state or above that of the Father, as it might even appear here, not at all. He's saying the glorified flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is sinless, that he bore our sin, rose in a glorified body, and he is now exalted above all. And every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, as Paul states here in Philippians chapter 2, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so the exaltation of Christ is, is superior to all other, and he is superior to all others in his exaltation. And this is a direct result, again, of his humility and submission to the Father. So if we are are to understand the point of Paul's declaration of the exaltation of Jesus, it is important that we first remember the truth of his person again, or who he is, or his eternality. So as I've mentioned, John 1, 1 through 3, and verse 14, we see prior to his incarnation, Jesus was eternally with the Father. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Specifically referencing the Lord Jesus. He's the creator. He's the means by which he created all things. Verse 14, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. He wasn't created. He was incarnated. He came in the incarnation of Christ. He manifested himself in the flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. First John 1, 1 and 2, same John, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. The eternal life. What is that eternal life? Who is that eternal life? The Lord Jesus. He is that eternal life, the word of life, and yet he was manifested unto us. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, God, who at sundry times and diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and holding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high being made so much better than the angels as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name 
than they. Interesting word to be used here, isn't it? Excellent. You know what that is? Superior. The superiority of the person, the name, the exaltation, the sacrifice, the humility of our Lord Jesus. So yet in his eternality, referring to his being, or as commonly stated, his existence, prior to the incarnation, it was not in the flesh. For it was through his incarnation that he humbled himself, as Paul declared in the previous verses, verses 6 and 7 again of Philippians 2. Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. So the exaltation of Jesus is not in relation to his eternal being, but he has been given a glorified body which is now exalted by God the Father. So that is what's being referenced here. So with this truth in mind, let us consider a couple of things here then. First, let's look at the magnitude of Christ's exaltation, the scope of this exaltation. The language Paul uses to emphasize the exaltation of Jesus is significant, as demonstrated in the statements in verse 9. Notice what he says, he exalted, given him a name above every name. However, the first word of verse 9 used by Paul to introduce us to the idea of the Father's exaltation of Christ, his Son, is of equal importance. Let's see how Paul begins this statement, verse 9. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him. Now, this is what is referred to as a, the word wherefore, is referred to as a logical conjunction. It simply means conjunction is one which is used to convey a deduction, a conclusion, a summary or inference regarding the previous discussion or statement, similar to the colon we talked about a moment ago. In other words, Paul is saying this, for this reason, or for this cause. So when he says, wherefore, God, I thought, he's saying, for this reason, for what reason? The previously stated reasons, for this reason, for this cause. So the statement is important concerning Christ's exaltation from the perspective of his supreme example of his humility and submission to the Father's will and purpose. From Paul's use of this language, we clearly conclude that it is because of the humility and submission of our Lord Jesus Christ that the Father has exalted Christ. Now, let me, there's two things we need to to draw from this truth. First of all, what we've already established from the Scriptures— The exaltation of Jesus only took place because of his submission, because of his humility. Had he never come in the flesh, there would be no exaltation because he is already supremely exalted. He is with the Father as part of the Godhead. And remember, many people try to explain the Godhead. It's inexplicable. We cannot begin to explain the Godhead. We cannot begin to comprehend and understand the Godhead. But we can believe what Scripture states about the Godhead, that which God has revealed about himself. And so many would say this, for instance, they would say, okay, so it's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Or they might say it's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But really it's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all exalted, all lifted high, all holy unto themselves. And meaning they are sanctified unto themselves. There's none other as they are, as the one true Godhead is. And so God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three distinct persons. And again, I submit to you that there is absolutely, no matter how genius one may think themselves to be, there is absolutely no humanly possible example that I can provide you 
to compare you to compare to the Godhead. There is nothing. Nothing is like the Godhead. He is unto himself who he is, and three distinct persons co-equally, I use the term very carefully, existing, abiding as one divine, eternal being. And so this is who God is. So when we consider the exaltation of Christ, we first must understand for this reason or for this cause, God has highly exalted him. For what cause? Because he humbled himself. But then there's another aspect of this for us to consider. For this cause and for this reason, God is exalted. And the only way he could be exalted was that he humbled himself, which he did. But also the exaltation of Jesus is equal to the humility and submission of Jesus. He lowered himself as low as he could possibly lower himself in taking home on human flesh as you and I. And yet he's exalted in a glorified body above all others as one with the Father still, but now in a glorified body forever. So both the humility and exaltation of Jesus are equally superior. The Father's exaltation of his Son is because of his humility, for had Jesus never been manifested in the flesh, he would have remained in eternal perfect fellowship with the Father while abiding in his presence. Yet Jesus humbled himself, and God the Father has equally now exalted him, and he did so in glorified flesh. Jesus forever is now in a glorified body, which for eternity existing prior to the incarnation, he possessed no body, but took on that form and now is exalted in that form because he submitted to the Father. Hebrews 2.9 says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. This same Jesus who became flesh is now crowned with glory and honor, but he humbled himself that he might take the wrath of the Father on our behalf. Verse 9 goes on to say, And given him a name which is above every name. The meaning of the use of the word name in this context does not simply refer to a title, but to a person. In other words, Jesus, who willingly humbled himself to become flesh, has now been exalted to not only the highest title, but the highest person. Remember, he is in a glorified body. A, not a spirit, a glorified body. So a name above every name does not just mean that the name J-E-S-U-S is the greatest name that, and you can't even speak the name. Though it is, obviously, we worship the, the truth of the person of the Son of God. But listen, the name Jesus, meaning the title Jesus, does not hold some super natural power to the letters that make up or comprise the name Jesus. It is the person, Jesus, that is the very power of God. And people misunderstand this. And the name Jesus, being the Son of God, it is this name every knee will bow. Just because someone says Jesus will know. But at the person of the, and lordship of Jesus, the Son of God, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Think of the people who throw the name Jesus around casually. Whether it be they do it in despising him or whether it be they do it uh, uh, just 
out of, out of a carelessness or whether it be that they misuse, misrepresent the name Jesus. I want to give you an understanding again of the name because we, we read the word name and immediately we think of a title because that's how we refer or relate to names. But let me remind you of something. If you look back even during the days of, of the Roman Empire, if someone were sent as a messenger and, and of, of, let's say, Caesar, so whichever Caesar that may have been, um, if they were to go in the, in the name, and by the way, Caesar as well as a title, you understand that, right? So the title Caesar, if you will, that position, it held power to it. And so if someone were to go in the name of Caesar, you'd better listen to what this person is saying, especially if they bear the seal or signet of Caesar, because the power is not in the word Caesar, it's in the man filling the position of Caesar, and therefore he has power to do and to enact and to send out and decree and so on and so forth. And people totally misunderstand that in our culture and society when people, people speak of the name of Jesus, they think of it as though if you just say the name Jesus, well, Jesus said, did he not? If any man shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. So how have we perverted that? Oh, just say Jesus and you get whatever you want because he said you would, he would know. In my name is in my power, in my authority, not in saying a group of letters together. And furthermore, John explains that in his epistle whenever he says, we have this confidence, we know, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. So if we ask according to his will, what is that? The power, the name, the authority of Christ. And so we recognize then that this name, which is above every name, is not simply a title. It is the very person behind that title that is exalted. So it's not simply that the title he has given is superior to all others, but his person and power are, are also superior to all others. Ephesians 1, 17 through 23, we read, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, the confidence of his calling, and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Here we talk the glorified body now, raising him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. Now, notice this. Notice how Paul groups all this together. Above all principality, power, might, dominion, and name. Do you think he's only talking about a title here and that's all he's referencing? No, he's talking about the power that be. All power that be will bow to the power that is supreme to the exalted Lord Jesus Christ, and gave him, or he goes on to say, um, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. You see, the exaltation of Christ, it has to do with God has highly exalted him and the glorified Christ. And if you recall, just consider this for a moment. When you look throughout the book of Revelation, when you see that Christ will return, and when Christ returns, 
And, and as, even as he appeared before John, and how did John describe him? In the book of Revelation, John describes Jesus in a way you never see him described anywhere else in the Scriptures. The meek and lowly Jesus, the humble Jesus, who is still meek and lowly and humble unto the Father. Don't misunderstand me, but the point is that meek and lowly Jesus you see who took the abuse and the suffering, who bore our sin, who took the wrath of the Father upon himself, he appears with eyes flaming as fire and a tongue as a sword that comes forth. That's not the same way Jesus looked in the previous writings. What has happened to him? He's exalted above all and all power is given unto him. You remember at his ascension in Matthew's gospel, Jesus said this. He didn't say all power shall be given unto me. He said all power is given unto me both in heaven and in earth. All power is given unto me. This is the exaltation, the glory, the majesty, the beauty, the power of Christ that upon at his name, at his person, before his person in his authority, in his power, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Men bow before men. Men bow before powers. But you see, we're talking about the superiority of Christ, the superiority of his humility, the superiority of his exaltation. It's not just some people will bow. All men will bow before him. No matter what position they've ever held, no matter who they are or who they've been, all humble themselves before the Son of God, the Lamb of God. Let's look at the results then of Christ's exaltation. Verses 10 and 11. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, which we've been speaking of. So because of his superior humility and now exaltation, all men will humble themselves before him. The same Jesus who humbled himself to humanity and death did not do so without reward. The scriptures clearly teach us that he is rewarded with his church people he has redeemed, but he's also rewarded by the fact that all men will humble themselves before the one who superiorly humbled himself. Isaiah 53, 10 through 12. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make an offering for sin, he shall see a seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Look at what's promised. He, oh, this is who he is. In previous verses in Isaiah 53, we see clearly as a sheep before his shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. So, so there was no beauty in him or comeliness that we should desire him or look for him. But yet, he humbled himself to this degree, even unto death, and the death of the cross, more importantly. And now God has rewarded him. Hebrews 12, 2. The writer says, looking at the author and finisher of our faith, who for our of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. What is the joy that is before him? Well, ultimately, that joy is that God the Father was going to exalt him. 
And he would be in the presence of the Father for all eternity. But also God was giving him his church. So the joy set before Jesus was the Father's purpose being ultimately accomplished through his submission to the Father's will. If Jesus says, my meat is to do the will of them that sent me, and he says, I came not to do my own will, but the will of my Father, which is in heaven. So Jesus says, I came only to do his will. Then what would be the joy of Christ? What would ultimately be the joy of Christ? The ultimate joy of Christ, him being in the flesh, if his whole purpose was to submit to the Father's will that the Father's purpose be accomplished. The ultimate joy of Christ is that through His sacrifice and humility and submission, the Father's purpose is accomplished. See, when we think of the cross and we think of the words of Christ and the sayings of Christ on the cross, and we remember this statement, it is finished. That truly is a declaration of victory Beyond just, oh, I'm laying down my life and now this whole miserable life is finally over. No. I have accomplished all the Father has purposed to accomplish in and through my incarnation, through my humility, and He is now going to redeem in time those whom He has given unto me. What a declaration of victory! It is finished. All that has been purposed to be accomplished is now completed in this work of redemption. I have come in the flesh. I have humbled myself in the flesh. I have died and suffered and died in the flesh. And all is accomplished through this submission. This is tremendous joy that the Father's purpose is accomplished. The exaltation of Jesus is equal to his humility and submission to the Heavenly Father. Just as the humility of Jesus was superior, so is his exaltation superior as provided by the Father. As Paul exhorted the reader in verse 5, we are to have the same mind or attitude as did our Lord, demonstrating his humility as we submit to his Spirit living in us. As Peter exhorted his reader. So let's connect the dots here. Now remember, verses 1 through 4 of this, this second chapter, Paul is saying, be like-minded, have the same Spirit. That we are to be in unity together, we are to have the same purpose, and we are to be like-minded, humbling ourselves and preferring others before ourselves. And then let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, then showed us the excellency of such humility and exaltation, the superiority of Christ, His person, His humility, and His exaltation, His glorification, if you will, in that regard. And yet, let us not disconnect in the next two verses verses 11 and 12, that Paul is going to clearly state, I'm sorry, verses 12 and 13, Paul is going to clearly state that we are to obey and we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, not meaning scared of God and afraid of Him in that sect, but in reverence to Him, recognizing His worth, recognizing who we are in humility before Him, and we are to work out, not work for, not work toward, not work on, work out our own salvation with fear and trembling because God is working in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure as Christ did his good pleasure. So let's not lose sight of this. This is the hymn to Christ in all of his beauty and as the supreme example. But then we are called to have this same attitude, to live in the same humility. And in 1 Peter 5, 5-7, Peter wrote, 
Likewise, you younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Do you see what's being stated here? We are to clothe ourselves in humility, having the same attitude as Christ. As we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, submitted to Him, whether it be suffering, whether it be in daily life, preferring others before ourselves as believers in Christ, specifically the brotherhood of Christ, the church, the body of Christ, as we would prefer others before ourselves humbly, He says, humble yourselves that God may exalt you. Now, I don't believe any of us are truly humbling ourselves if we humble ourselves for the sake of the exaltation. We humble ourselves because God has commanded us to humble ourselves and because our desire as the desire of Christ should be that in all things the Father's purpose is being accomplished through our lives. But what a joy is it not to know that as we humble ourselves that God will exalt And we see the supreme example of humility and the supreme example of exaltation in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. I simply conclude with this question to you this morning. Who is like our Savior? (laughs) There is none. Who has done what He has done? There is none other than He. Who could have done what He has done? None but He. Who is exalted as he is exalted? None but he. Should we not stand in awe and wonder of who he is? But listen, here's here's the truth. If we honestly are in awe of who he is and all that he has done, that will cultivate within us as his people a desire to live as he lived, his life being lived through us. So the more we are in awe of what He has done and who He is, the more so we will find ourselves desiring to submit to the Father as Christ submitted to the Father. Let's stand together. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for our wonderful...